CD2 To understand why dwarfs and trolls don't like each other, you have to go back a long way. They get along like chalk and cheese, very like chalk and cheese, really. One is organic, the other isn't, and also smells a bit cheesy. Dwarfs make a living by smashing up rocks with valuable minerals in them, and the silicon-based life form known as trolls are, basically, rocks with valuable minerals in them. In the wild, they also spend most of the daylight hours dormant, and that's not a situation a rock containing valuable minerals needs to be in when there are dwarfs around. And dwarfs hate trolls because after you've just found an interesting seam of valuable minerals, you don't like rocks that suddenly stand up and tear your arm off because you've just stuck a pickaxe in their ear. It was a state of permanent interspecies vendetta, and like all good vendettas, didn't really need a reason anymore. It was enough that it had always existed. The Battle of Coombe Valley is the only one known to history where both sides ambushed each other. Dwarfs hated trolls because trolls hated dwarfs, and vice versa. The watch lurked in Three Lamps Alley, which was about halfway down Short Street. There was a distant crackle of fireworks. Dwarfs let them off to drive away evil mine spirits. Trolls let them off because they tasted nice. Don't see why we can't let them fight it out amongst themselves and then the rest the losers said Corporal Nobbs. That's what we always used to do. The patrician gets really shirty about ethnic trouble, said Sergeant Colon moodily. He gets really sarcastic about it. A thought struck him. He brightened up a little bit. Got any ideas, Carrot? he said. A second thought struck him. Carrot was a simple lad. Corporal Carrot? Sarge? Sort this lot out, will you? Carrot peered around the corner at the advancing walls of trolls and dwarfs. They'd already seen each other. Right you are, Sergeant, he said. Lance Constable's cuddy and detritus don't salute. You come with me. You can't let him go out there, said Angua. It's certain death. Got a real sense of duty, that boy, said Corporal Nobbs. He took a minute length of doggin from behind his ear and struck a match on the sole of his boot. Don't worry, miss, said Colon. He... Lance Constable, said Angua. What? Lance Constable, she repeated, not Miss. Carrot says I don't have any sex while I'm on duty. To the background of Nobby's frantic coughing, Colon said very quickly, What I mean is, uh, Lance Constable, young Carrot's got charisma. Bags of charisma. Charisma? Bags of it. The jolting had stopped. Chubby was really annoyed now. Really, really annoyed. There was a rustling noise, a piece of sacking moved aside, and there, staring at Chubby, was another male dragon. It looked annoyed. Chubby reacted in the only way he knew how. Carrot stood in the middle of the street, arms folded, while the two new recruits stood just behind him, trying to keep an eye on both approaching marches at the same time. Colon thought Carrot was simple. Carrot often struck people as simple, and he was. Where people went wrong was thinking that simple meant the same thing as stupid. Carrot was not stupid. He was direct and honest and good-natured and honourable in all his dealings. In Ankh-Morpork, this would normally have added up to stupid in any case and would have given him the survival quotient of a jellyfish in a blast furnace. But there were a couple of other factors. One was a punch that even trolls had learned to respect. The other was that Carrot was genuinely, almost supernaturally, likeable. He got on well with people, even while arresting them. He had an exceptional memory for names. 
For most of his young life he'd lived in a small dwarf colony where there were hardly any other people to know. Then, suddenly, he was in a huge city, and it was as if a talent had been waiting to unfold, and was still unfolding. He waved cheerfully at the approaching dwarfs. "'Morning, Mr. Cumblethigh. Morning, Mr. Strong in the arm.' Then he turned and waved at the leading troll. There was a muffled pop as a firework went off. "'Morning, Mr. Borksight.' He cupped his hands. "'If you could all just stop and listen to me,' he bellowed. The two marches did stop, with some hesitation at a general piling up of people in the back. It was that, or walk over Carrot. If Carrot did have a minor fault, it lay in not paying attention to small details around him when his mind was on other things, so the whispered conversation behind his back was currently escaping him. "'Ha! It was too an ambush, and your mother was an oor. "'Now then, gentlemen,' said Carrot, in a reasoned and amiable voice, "'I'm sure there's no need for this belligerent manner.' "'You ambush us too? "'My great-great-grandfather, he at Coombe Valley, he tell me, "'in our fair city on such a lovely day. "'I must ask you, as good citizens of Ankh-Morpork, "'Oh, yeah, you even know who your father is, do you?' that while you must certainly celebrate your proud ethnic folkways to profit by the example of my fellow officers here who have sunk their ancient differences, I smash your head, you rogsome dwarfs, for the greater benefit of I could take you with one hand tied behind my back, the city whose badge they are, you get the opportunity, I tie both hands behind you back. Proud and privileged to wear. It dawned on Carrot that hardly anyone was paying any attention to him. He turned. Lance Constable Cuddy was upside down because Lance Constable Detritus was trying to bounce him on the cobbles by his helmet. Although Lance Constable Cuddy was putting the position to good effect by gripping Lance Constable Detritus around the knee and trying to sink his teeth into Lance Constable Detritus's ankle. The opposing marchers watched in fascination. "'We should do something,' said Angua from the guard's hiding place in the alley. "'Well,' said Sergeant Colon slowly, "'it's always very tricky, ethnic. "'Can put a foot wrong very easily,' said Nobby. "'Very thin-skinned, your basic uh, ethnic.' "'Thin-skinned? They're trying to kill one another.' "'It's, um... "'Cultural,' said Sergeant Colon miserably. "'No sense in us trying to force our culture on them, is there? "'That's a, that's a speciesist.' "'Out in the street, Corporal Carrot had gone very red in the face. "'If he lays a finger on either of them, with all their friends watching,' said Nobby, "'the plan is we run away like hell.' "'Veins stood out on Carrot's mighty neck. "'He stuck his hands on his waist and bellowed, "'Lance Constable Detritus, salute!' They'd spent hours trying to teach him. Detritus's brain took some time to latch on to an idea, but once it was there it didn't fade away fast. He saluted. His hand was full of dwarf. So he saluted while holding Lance Constable Cuddy, swinging him up and over like a small angry club. The sound of their helmets meeting echoed off the buildings, and it was followed a moment later by the crash of them both hitting the ground. Carrot prodded them with the toe of his sandal. Then he turned and strode towards the dwarf marchers, shaking with anger. In the alleyway, Sergeant Colon started to suck the rim of his helmet out of terror. "'You've got weapons, haven't you?' snarled Carrot at a hundred dwarfs. "'Own up! 
If the dwarfs who've got weapons don't drop them right this minute, the entire parade, and I mean the entire parade, will be put in the cells. I'm serious about this. The dwarfs in the front row took a step backwards. There was a desultory tinkle of metallic objects hitting the ground. All of them, said Carrot menacingly. That includes you with the black beard trying to hide behind Mr. Hamslinger. I can see you, Mr. Strong in the arm. Put it down. No one's amused. He's going to die, isn't he? said Angua quietly. Funny that, said Nobby. If we was to try it, we'd be little bits of mints. But it seems to work for him. Chrisma, said Sergeant Colon, who was having to lean on the wall. Do you mean charisma? said Angua. Yeah, one of them things, yeah. How does he manage it? Don't know, said Nobby. Suppose he's an easy lad to like. Carrot had turned on the trolls who were smirking at the dwarf's discomfiture. And as for you, he said, I shall definitely be patrolling around Quarry Lane tonight, and I won't be seeing any trouble, will I? There was a shuffling of huge oversized feet and a general muttering. Carrot cupped his hand to his ear. I couldn't quite hear, he said. There was a louder mutter, a sort of Takata scored for one hundred reluctant voices on the theme of, yes, Corporal Carrot. Right, now off you go and let's have no more of this nonsense, there's good chaps. Carrot brushed the dust off his hands and smiled at everyone. The trolls looked puzzled. In theory, Carrot was a thin film of grease on the street, but somehow it just didn't seem to be happening. Angua said, He just called a hundred trolls good chaps. Some of them are just down from the mountains. Some of them have got lichen on them. Smartest thing on a troll said Sergeant Colon. And then the world exploded. The watch had left before Captain Vimes got back to Pseudopolis Yard. He plodded up the stairs to his office and sat down in the sticky leather chair. He gazed blankly at the wall. He wanted to leave the guard. Of course he did. It wasn't what you could call a way of life. Not life. Unsocial hours never being certain from one day to the next what the law actually was in this pragmatic city, no home life to speak of, bad food, eaten when you could. He'd even eaten some of cut-me-own-throat Dibbler's sausages in a bun before now. It always seemed to be raining or baking hot, no friends except for the rest of the squad because they were the only people who live in your world. Whereas in a few days he would, as Sergeant Colon has said, be on the gravy boat. Nothing to do all day but eat his meals and ride around on a big horse shouting orders at people. At times like this, the image of old Sergeant Keppel floated across his memory. He'd been head of the watch when Vimes was a recruit, and soon afterwards he retired. They'd all clubbed together and bought him a cheap watch, one of those that keep going for a few years until the demon inside it evaporated. Bloody stupid idea, Vimes thought moodily, staring at the wall. Bloke leaves work, hands in his badge and hourglass and bell, and what do we get him? A watch. But he'd still come into work the next day with his new watch. To show everyone the ropes, he said. To tidy up a few loose ends, ha ha. See you youngsters don't get into trouble, ha ha. A month later he was bringing the coal in and sweeping the floor and running errands and helping people write reports. He was still there five years later. He was still there six years later when one of the watch got in early and found him lying on the floor. And it emerged that no one, no one knew where he lived or even if there was a Mrs. Keppel. They had a whip round to bury him, Vimes remembered. There were just guards at the funeral. Come to think of it, 
There were always just guards at a guard's funeral. Of course, it wasn't like that now. Sergeant Colon had been happily married for years, perhaps because he and his wife arranged their working lives so that they only met occasionally, normally on the doorstep. But she left him decent meals in the oven, and there was clearly something there. They'd got grandchildren, even, so obviously there had been times when they'd been unable to avoid each other. Young Carrot had to fight young women off with a stick. And Corporal Nobbs, well, he probably made his own arrangements. He was said to have the body of a twenty-five-year-old, although no one knew where he kept it. The point was that everyone else had someone, even if in Nobby's case it was probably against their will. So, Captain Vimes, what is it, really? Do you care for her? Don't worry too much about love. That's a dicey word for the over-forties. Or are you just afraid of becoming some old man dying in the groove of his life and buried out of pity by a bunch of youngsters who never knew you as anything other than some old fart who always seemed to be around the place and got sent out to bring back the coffee and hot figgins and was laughed at behind his back? He'd wanted to avoid that. And now fate was handing him a fairy tale. Of course he'd known she was rich, but he hadn't expected the summons to Mr Morecambe's office. Mr. Morecambe had been the Ramkins family solicitor for a long time. Centuries, in fact. He was a vampire. Vimes disliked vampires. Dwarfs were law-abiding little buggers when they were sober, and even trolls were all right if you kept them where you could see them. But all the undead made his neck itch. Live and let live was all very well, but there was a problem right there when you thought about it logically. Mr. Morecambe was scrawny, like a tortoise, and very pale. It had taken him ages to come to the point... And when it came, the point nailed Vimes to his chair. How much? Uh, I believe I am right in saying the estate, including the farms, the areas of urban development and the small area of unreal estate near the university are together worth approximately... Seven uh, million dollars a year, yes, yes. Seven million at current valuation, I would say. It's all mine. From the hour of your wedding to Lady Sybil, although she instructs me in this letter that you are to have access to all her accounts as of the present moment. The pearly dead eyes had watched Vimes carefully. Lady Sybil, he said, owns approximately one-tenth of Ark and extensive properties in Moorpork, plus, of course, considerable farmlands in... But... but we'll own them together. Lady Sybil is very specific. She is deeding all the property to you as her husband. She has a somewhat old-fashioned approach. He pushed a folded paper across the table. Vimes took it, unfolded it, and stared. Should you predecease her, of course, Mr Morecambe droned on, it will revert to her by common right of marriage, or to any fruit of the union, of course. Vimes hadn't even said anything at that point. he just felt his mouth drop open and small areas of his brain fused together. 
Lady Sybil, said the lawyer, the words coming from far away, while not as young as she was, is a fine, healthy woman, and there is no reason why... Vimes had got through the rest of the interview on automatic. He could hardly think about it now. When he tried, his thoughts kept skidding away, and just as always happened when the world got too much for him, they skidded somewhere else. He pulled open the bottom drawer of his desk and stared at the shiny bottle of Bear Hugger's very fine whisky. He wasn't sure how it had got there. Somehow he'd never got around to throwing it out. Start that again and you won't even see retirement. Stick to cigars. He shut the drawer and leaned back, taking a half-smoked cigar from his pocket. Maybe the guards weren't so good now anyway. Politics. <laughs> Watchmen like old Keppel would turn in their graves if they knew that the watch had taken on a woman and the world exploded. The window blew in, peppering the wall behind Vimes's desk with fragments and cutting one of his ears. He threw himself to the floor and rolled under the desk. Right, that did it. The alchemists had blown up their guildhouse for the last time. If Vimes had anything to do with it... But when he peered over the windowsill, he saw across the river the column of dust rising over the Assassin's Guild. The rest of the watch came trotting along Filigree Street as Vimes reached the guild entrance. A couple of black-clad assassins barred his way in a polite manner which nevertheless indicated that impoliteness was a future option. There were sounds of hurrying feet behind the gates. "'You see this badge? You see it?' Vimes demanded. "'Nevertheless, this is guild property,' said an assassin. "'Let us in in the name of the law!' bellowed Vimes." The assassin smiled nervously at him. "'The law is that guild law prevails inside guild walls,' he said. Vimes glared at him. But it was true. The laws of the city, such as they were, stopped outside the guild houses. The guilds had their own laws. The guild owned the—' He stopped. Behind him, Lance Constable Angua reached down and picked up a fragment of glass. Then she stirred the debris with her foot— and then her gaze met that of a small, nondescript mongrel dog watching her very intently from under a cart. In fact, nondescript was not what it was. It was very easy to descript. It looked like halitosis with a wet nose. Woo, woo, said the dog in a bored way. Woo, 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 and growl, growl, growl. The dog trotted into the mouth of an alleyway. Angua glanced around and followed it. The rest of the squad were gathered around Vimes, who'd gone very quiet. "'Fetch me the master of assassins,' he said. "'Now!' The young assassin tried to sneer. "'Huh!' he said. "'Your uniform doesn't scare me,' he said. Vimes looked down at his battered breastplate and worn mail. "'You're right,' he said. "'This is not a scary uniform. "'I'm sorry. "'Forward, Corporal Carrot and Last Constable Detritus.' The assassin was suddenly aware of the sunlight being blocked out. "'Now these, I think you'll agree,' said Vimes from somewhere behind the eclipse, "'are scary uniforms.' The assassin nodded slowly. He hadn't asked for this. Usually there were never any guards outside the guild. What would be the point? He had, tucked away in his exquisitely tailored black clothes, at least eighteen devices for killing people, but he was becoming aware that Lance Constable Detritus had one on the end of each of his arms.' Closer, as it were, to hand. I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll go and get the master then, shall I? He said. Carrot leaned down. Thank you for your cooperation, he said gravely. Angua watched the dog. The dog watched her. 
She squatted on her haunches as it sat down and scratched an ear furiously. Looking around carefully to make sure that no one could see them, she barked an inquiry. Don't bother, said the dog. You can talk. <laughs> that don't take much intelligence, said the dog, and it don't take much intelligence to spot what you are neither. Angua looked panicky. Where does it show? It's the smell, girl. Didn't you learn nothing? Smelled you a mile off. I thought, oh, 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 what's one of them doing in the watch, eh? Angua waved a finger wildly. If you tell anyone... The dog looked more pained than normal. No one would listen, it said. Why not? Cos everyone knows dogs can't talk. They hear me, see, but unless things are really tough, they just think they're thinking to themselves. The little dog sighed. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. I've read books. Well, chewed books. It scratched an ear again. Seems to me, it said, we could help each other. In what way? Well, you could put me in the way of a pound of steak. That does wonders for me memory, like. Steak makes it go clean away. Angua frowned. People don't like the word blackmail, she said. It ain't the only word they don't like, said the dog. Take my case now. I've got chronic intelligence. Is that any use to a dog? Did I ask for it? Not me. I just finds a cushy spot to spend me nights along the high energy magic building at the university. No one told me about all this bloody magic leaking out the old time. Next thing I know, I open my eyes, Ed starts fizzing like a dose of salts. Uh-oh, thinks I, here we go again. Hello, abstract conceptualising, intellectual development, here we come. What bloody use is that to me? Last time it happened, I ended up saving the world from horrible wasp names, from the dungeon dimensions. And did anyone say thanks? What a good dog, give him a bone. Uh-huh. It held up a threadbare paw. My name's Gaspard. Something like this happens to me just about every week. Apart from that, I'm just a dog. Angua gave up. She grasped the moth-eaten limb and shook it. My name's Angua. You know what I am. Forgotten it already, said Gaspard. Captain Vimes looked at the debris scattered across the courtyard from a hole in one of the ground floor rooms. All the surrounding windows had broken, and there was a lot of glass underfoot, mirror glass. Of course, assassins were notoriously vain, but mirrors would be in rooms, wouldn't they? You wouldn't expect a lot of glass outside. Glass got blown in, not out. He saw Lance Constable Cuddy bend down and pick up a couple of pulleys attached to a piece of rope which was burned at one end. There was a rectangle of card in the debris. The hairs on the back of Vimes's hand prickled. He sniffed rankness in the air. Vimes would be the first to admit that he wasn't a good copper, but he'd probably be spared the chore because lots of other people would happily admit it for him. There was a certain core of stubborn bloody-mindedness there which upset important people, and anyone who upsets important people is automatically not a good copper. But he'd developed instincts. You couldn't live on the streets of a city all your life without them. In the same way that the whole jungle subtly changes at the distant approach of the hunter, there was an alteration in the feel of the city. There was something happening here, something wrong, and he couldn't quite see what it was. He started to reach down. What is the meaning of this? Vimes straightened up. He did not turn around. 
Sergeant Colon, I want you to go back to the watch house with Nobby and Detritus, he said. Corporal Carrot and Lance Constable Cuddy, you stay with me. Yes, sir, said Sergeant Colon, stamping heavily and ripping off a smart salute to annoy the assassins. Vimes acknowledged it. Then he turned around. Ah, Dr. Cruces, he said. The Master of Assassins was white with rage, contrasting nicely with the extreme black of his clothing. No one sent for you, he said. What gives you the right to be here, Mr. Policeman, walking around as if you owned the place? Vimes paused, his heart singing. He savoured the moment. He'd like to take this moment and press it carefully in a big book, so that when he was old he could take it out occasionally and remember it. He reached into his breastplate and pulled out the lawyer's letter. Well, if you would like the most fundamental reason, he said, it's because I rather think I do. A man can be defined by the things he hates. There were quite a lot of things that Captain Vimes hated. Assassins were near the top of the list, just after kings and the undead. He had to allow, though, that Dr. Cruces recovered very quickly. He didn't explode when he read the letter, or argue, or claim it was a forgery. He simply folded it up, handed it back, and said coldly, I see. The freehold, at least. Quite so. Could you tell me what has been happening, please? He was aware of other senior assassins entering the courtyard through the hole in the wall. They were very carefully looking at the debris. Dr. Cruces hesitated for a moment. Fireworks, he said. What happened? said Gaspode, was that someone put a dragon in a box right up against the wall inside the courtyard, right? And then they went and hid behind one of the statues and pulled a string, and next minute, bang! Bang? That's right. Then our friend nips into the hole for a few seconds, right, comes out again, trots round the courtyard, and next minute there's assassins everywhere and he's among them. What the hell? Another man in black no one notices, see? You mean he's still in there? How do I know? Hoods and cloaks, everyone in black. How come you were able to see all this? Oh, I always nip into the Assassin's Guild on a Wednesday night, mixed grill night, see? Gaspode sighed at Angua's blank expression. The cook always does a mixed grill of a Wednesday night. No one ever eats the black pudding, so it's round the kitchen, see? Woof, woof, beg, beg. Who's a good boy, then? Look at the little bugger. He looks as though he understands every word I'm saying. Let's see what we've got here for a good doggy. He looked embarrassed for a moment. Pride is all very well, but a sausage is a sausage, he said. Fireworks, said Vimes. Dr. Cruces looked like a man grasping a floating log in a choppy sea. Yes, fireworks. Yes, for Founder's Day. Unfortunately, someone threw away a lighted match which ignited the box. Dr. Cruces suddenly smiled. My dear Captain Vimes, he said, clapping his hands, much as I appreciate your concern, I really... They were stored in that room over there, said Vimes. Yes, but that's of no account. Vimes crossed to the hole in the wall and peered inside. A couple of assassins glanced at Dr. Cruces and reached nonchalantly towards various areas of their clothing. He shook his head. His caution might have had something to do with the way Carrot put his hand on the hilt of his sword, but it could also have been because assassins did have a certain code, after all. It was dishonourable to kill someone if you weren't being paid. It seems to be some kind of museum, 
said Vimes. Guild memorabilia, that sort of thing? Yes, exactly. Odds and ends, you know how they mount up over the years? Oh, well, that all seems in order, said Vimes. Sorry to have troubled you, Doctor. I will be going. I hope I've not inconvenienced you in any way. Of course not. Glad to have been able to put your mind at rest. They were ushered gently yet firmly towards the gateway. I should clean up this glass, said Captain Vimes, glancing at the debris again. Someone could hurt themselves, all this glass lying around. Wouldn't like to see one of your people get hurt. We shall be doing it right this minute, Captain, said Dr. Cruces. Good, good, thank you very much. Captain Vimes paused at the doorway and then thumped the palm of his hand on his forehead. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Mind like a sieve these days. What was it you said was stolen? Not a muscle, not a sinew moved on Dr. Cruz's face. I didn't say anything was stolen, Captain Vimes. Vimes gaped at him for a moment. Right, sorry, oh, of course you didn't. Apologies, were getting on top of me, I expect. I'll be going then. The door slammed in his face. Right, said Vimes. Captain, why do... Carrick began. Vimes held up a hand. That wraps it up, then, he said, slightly louder than necessary. Nothing to worry about. Let's get back to the yard. Where's Lance Constable? What's her name? Here, Captain, said Angua, stepping out of the alley. Hiding, eh? And what's that? Woof, woof, wine, wine, wine. It's a little dog, Captain. Good grief. The clang of the big corroded inhumation bell echoed through the Assassin's Guild. Black-clad figures came running from all directions, pushing and shoving in their haste to get to the courtyard. The Guild Council assembled hurriedly outside Dr. Cruz's office. His deputy, Mr. Downey, knocked tentatively on the door. Come. The Council filed in. Cruz's office was the biggest room in the building. It always seemed wrong to visitors that the Assassin's Guild had such light, airy, well-designed premises, more like the premises of a gentleman's club than a building where death was plotted on a daily basis. Cheery, sporting prints lined the walls, although the quarry was not, when you looked closely, stags or foxes. There were also group etchings, and more recently, new-fangled iconographs of the guild, rows of smiling faces on black-clad bodies, and the youngest members sitting cross-legged in front, one of them making a face. There's always one. Down one side of the room was the big mahogany table where the elders of the guild sat in weekly session. The other side of the room held Cruz's private library and a small workbench. Above the bench was an apothecary cabinet, made up of hundreds of little drawers. The names on the drawer labels were in Assassin's Code, but visitors from outside the guild were generally sufficiently unnerved not to accept a drink. Four pillars of black granite held up the ceiling. They had been carved with the names of noted assassins from history. Cruz's had his desk four square between them. He was standing behind it. His expression almost as wooden as the desk. "'I want a roll call,' he snapped. "'Has anyone left the guild?' "'No, sir.' "'How can you be so sure?' "'The guards on the roof in Filigree Street say no one came in or went out, sir.' "'And who's watching them?' "'They're watching one another, sir.' "'Very well. Listen carefully. I want the mess cleaned up.' If anyone needs to go outside the building, I want everyone watched. And then the guild is going to be searched from top to bottom, do you understand? What for, Doctor? said a junior lecturer in poisons. 
for anything that is hidden. If you find anything and you don't know what it is, send for a council member immediately and don't touch it. But, Doctor, all sorts of things are hidden. This will be different. Do you understand? No, sir. Good. And no one is to speak to the wretched watch about this. You, boy, bring me my hat. Dr. Cruces sighed. I suppose I shall have to go and tell the patrician. Hard luck, sir. The captain didn't say anything until they were crossing the brass bridge. Now then, Corporal Carrot, he said, you know how I've always told you how observation is important. Yes, Captain, I've always paid careful attention to your remarks on the subject. So what did you observe? Someone had smashed a mirror. Everyone knows assassins like mirrors, but if it was a museum, why was there a mirror in there? Please, sir. Who said that? Down here, sir. Lord's Constable Cuddy. Oh, yes. Yes? I know a bit about fireworks, sir. There's a smell you get after fireworks. Didn't smell it, sir. Smelled something else, sir. Well smelled, Cuddy. And there were bits of burned rope and pulleys. I smelled dragon, said Vimes. Sure, Captain? Trust me, Vimes grimaced. If you spent any time in Lady Ramkin's company, you soon found out what dragons smelled like. If something put its head in your lap while you were dining, you said nothing. You just kept passing it titbits and hoping like hell it didn't hiccup. There was a glass case in that room, he said. It was smashed open. <laughs> something was stolen. There was a bit of card in the dust, but someone must have pinched it while old Cruces was talking to me. I'd give a hundred dollars to know what it said. Why, Captain, said Corporal Carrot, because that bastard Cruces doesn't want me to know. I know what could have blown the hole open, said Angua. What? An exploding dragon. They walked in stunned silence. That could do it, sir, said Carrot loyally. The little devils go bang at the drop of a helmet. Dragon, muttered Vimes. What makes you think it was a dragon, Lance Constable Angua? Angua hesitated. Because a dog told me, was not, she judged, a career-advancing thing to say at this point. Uh, women's intuition, she suggested. I suppose, said Vimes, you wouldn't hazard an intuitive guess as to what was stolen. Angua shrugged. Carrot noticed how interestingly her chest moved. Something the assassins wanted to keep where they could look at it, she said. Oh, yes, said Vimes. I suppose next you'll tell me this dog saw it all. Ruff. Edward de Eth drew the curtains, bolted the door, and leaned on it. It had been so easy. He'd put the bundle on the table. It was thin and about four feet long. He unwrapped it carefully, and there it was. It looked pretty much like the drawing. Typical of the man, a whole page full of meticulous drawings of crossbows, and this in the margin, as though it hardly mattered. It was so simple. Why hide it away? Probably because people were afraid. People were always afraid of power. It made them nervous. Edward picked it up, cradled it for a while, and found that it seemed to fit his arm and shoulder very snugly. You're m mine. And that, more or less, was the end of Edward death. Something continued for a while, but what it was and how it thought wasn't entirely human. It was nearly noon. 
Sergeant Colon had taken the new recruits down to the archery butts in Butts Treat. Vimes went on patrol with Carrot. He felt something inside him bubbling over. Something was brushing the tips of his corroded but nevertheless still active instincts, trying to draw attention to itself. He had to be on the move. It was all that Carrot could do to keep up. There were trainee assassins in the streets around the guild, still sweeping up debris. Assassins in daylight, snarled Vimes. I'm amazed they don't turn to dust. That's vampires, sir, said Carrot. <laughs> You're right. Assassins and licensed thieves and bloody vampires. You know, this was a great old city once, lad. Unconsciously, they fell into step. Proceeding. When we had kings, sir. Kings? Kings? Hell no. A couple of assassins looked around in surprise. I'll tell you, said Vimes. A monarch's an absolute ruler, right? The head honcho. Unless he's a queen, said Carrot. Vimes glared at him and then nodded. OK, or the head hodchet. No, that'd only apply if she was a young woman. Queens tend to be older. She'd have to be a, um, a honcherina? No, that'd be for very young princesses. No, um, a honchessa, I think. Vimes paused. There's something in the air in this city, he thought. If the creator had said, let there be light in Ankh Morpork, he'd have got no further because of all the people saying, what colour? The supreme ruler, OK, he said, starting to stroll forward again. OK. But that's not right, see, one man with the power of life and death. But if he's a good man, Carrot began. What? What? OK, OK, let's believe he's a good man, but he's second in command. Is he a good man too? You'd better hope so, because he's the supreme ruler too, in the name of the king. And the rest of the court, they've got to be good men. Because if just one of them's a bad man, the result is bribery and patronage. The patrician's a supreme ruler, Carrot pointed out. He nodded at a passing troll. Good day, Mr Carbuncle. But he doesn't wear a crown or sit on a throne. And he doesn't tell you it's right that he should rule, said Vimes. I hate the bastard, but he's honest. Honest like a corkscrew. Even so, a good man as king. Yes, and then what? Royalty pollutes people's minds, boy. Honest men start bowing and bobbing just because someone's granddad was a bigger murdering bastard than theirs was. Listen, we probably had good kings once, but kings breed other kings, and blood tells, and you end up with a bunch of arrogant, murdering bastards, chopping off queens' heads and fighting their cousins every five minutes. And we had centuries of that. And then one day a man said, No more kings. And we rose up, and we fought the bloody nobles, and we dragged the king off his throne, and we dragged him into Sator Square, and we chopped his bloody head off. Job well done. Wow, said Carrot. Who was he? Who? The man who said no more kings. People were staring. Vimes's face went from the red of anger to the red of embarrassment. There was little difference in the shading, however. Oh, he was commander of the city guard in those days, he mumbled. They called him Old Stoneface. Never heard of him, said Carrot. He, uh, doesn't appear much in the history books, said Vimes. Sometimes there has to be a civil war, and sometimes afterwards it's best to pretend something didn't happen. Sometimes people have to do a job, and then they have to be forgotten. He wielded the axe, you know. No one else would do it. It was a king's neck, after all. Kings are... He spat the word, special. Even after they'd seen the uh, private rooms and cleaned up the uh, bits, even then, 
No one had cleaned up the world, but he took the axe and cursed them all and did it. What king was it? said Carrot. Lorenzo the Kind, said Vimes distantly. I've seen his picture in the Palace Museum, said Carrot. A fat old man surrounded by lots of children. Oh, yes, said Vimes carefully. He was very fond of children. Carrot waved at a couple of dwarfs. I didn't know this, he said. I thought there was just some wicked rebellion or something. Vimes shrugged. It's in the history books, if you know where to look. And that was the end of the Kings of Ankh-Morpork. Oh, there was a surviving son, I think, and a few mad relatives. They were banished. That's supposed to be a terrible fate for royalty. I can't see it myself. I think I can, and you like the city, sir. Well, yes, but if it was a choice between banishment and having me head chopped off, just help me down with a suitcase. Ah, we're well rid of kings. But, I mean, the city used to work. Still does, said Carrot. They passed the Assassin's Guild and drew level with the high, forbidding walls of the Fool's Guild, which occupied the other corner of the block. Now it just keeps going. I mean, look up there. Carrot obediently raised his gaze. There was a familiar building on the junction of Broadway and Alchemists. The facade was ornate, but covered in grime. Gargoyles had colonised it. The corroded motto over the portico said, Neither rain nor snow nor glom of knit can stay these meffengers about their duty. And in more spacious days, that might have been the case, but recently someone had found it necessary to nail up an addendum which read, Don't ask us about rocks, trolls with sticks, all sorts of dragons, Mrs. Cake, huge green things with teeth, any kinds of black dogs with orange eyebrows, reins of spaniels, fog, Mrs. Cake. Oh, he said, the Royal Mail. The post office, corrected Vimes. My granddad said that once you could post a letter there and it'd be delivered within a month without fail. You didn't have to give it to a passing dwarf and hope the little bugger wouldn't eat it before... His voice trailed off. Er, uh, sorry, no offence meant. None taken, said Carrot cheerfully. It's not that I've got anything against dwarfs. I've always said you'd have to look very hard before you'd find a better bunch of highly skilled, law-abiding, hard-working, uh Little buggers? Yes. No. They proceeded. That Mrs. Cake, said Carrot, definitely a strong-minded woman, eh? Too true, said Vimes. Something crunched under Carrot's enormous sandal. More glass, he said. It went a long way, didn't it? Exploding dragons! What an imagination the girl has! Woof, woof, said a voice behind them. That damned dog's been following us, said Vimes. It's barking at something on the wall, said Carrot. Gaspode eyed them coldly. Woof, woof, bloody wine, wine, he said. Are you bloody blind or what? It was true that normal people couldn't hear Gaspode speak because dogs don't speak, it's a well-known fact. It's well known at the organic level, like a lot of other well-known facts which overrule the observations of the senses. This is because if people went around noticing everything that was going on all the time, no one would ever get anything done. This is another survival trait. Besides, almost all dogs don't talk. Ones that do are merely a statistical error and can therefore be ignored. However, Gaspode had found he did tend to get heard on a subconscious level.
Only the previous day someone had absent-mindedly kicked him into the gutter and had gone a few steps before they suddenly thought, I'm a bastard, what am I? There is something up there, said Carrot. Look, something blue hanging off that gargoyle. Woof, 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 would you credit it? Vimes stood on Carrot's shoulders and walked his hand up the wall, but the little blue strip was still out of reach. The gargoyle rolled a stony eye towards him. Do you mind, said Vimes, it's hanging on your ear. With a grinding of stone on stone, the gargoyle reached up a hand and unhooked the intrusive material. Thank you. <laughs> Vimes climbed down again. You like gargoyles, don't you, Captain? said Carrot, as they strolled away. Yep, they may only be a kind of troll, but they keep themselves to themselves and seldom go below the first floor and don't commit crimes anyone ever finds out about. My type of people. He unfolded the strip. It was a collar, or at least what remained of a collar. It was burnt at both ends. The word chubby was just readable through the soot. The devils, said Vimes. They did blow up a dragon. The most dangerous man in the world should be introduced. He has dissected a few, but only after they were dead, because he was an early form of free-thinking scientist and did not believe that human beings had been created by some sort of divine being. Dissecting people when they were still alive tended to be a priestly preoccupation. They thought mankind had been created by some sort of divine being and wanted to have a closer look at his handiwork, and had marvelled at how well they'd been put together considering it had been done by unskilled labour. For several years, he hadn't moved outside a large, airy room, but this was okay, because he spent most of his time inside his own head in any case. As a certain type of person, it's very hard to imprison. He had, however, surmised that an hour's exercise every day was essential for a healthy appetite and proper bowel movements, and was currently sitting on a machine of his own invention. It consisted of a saddle above a pair of treadles which turned, by means of a chain, a large wooden wheel currently held off the ground on a metal stand. Another freewheeling wooden wheel was positioned in front of the saddle and could be turned by means of a tiller arrangement. He'd fitted the extra wheel and tiller so that he could wheel the entire thing over to the wall when he'd finished taking his exercise, and besides, it gave the whole thing a pleasing symmetry. He called it the turning the wheel with pedals and another wheel machine. Lord Vetinari was also at work. Normally he was in the oblong office or seated in his plain wooden chair at the foot of the steps in the palace of Ankh-Morpork. There was an ornate throne at the top of the steps, covered with dust. It was the throne of Ankh-Morpork and was indeed made of gold. He'd never dreamed of sitting on it. But it was a nice day, so he was working in the garden. Visitors to Ankh-Morpork were often surprised to find that there were some interesting gardens attached to the patrician's palace. The patrician was not a gardens kind of person, but some of his predecessors had been, and Lord Vetinari never changed or destroyed anything if there was no logical reason to do so. He maintained the little zoo and the racehorse stable, and even recognised that the gardens themselves were of extreme historic interest, because this was so obviously the case. They had been laid out by bloody stupid Johnson. Many great landscape gardeners have gone down in history and been remembered in a very solid way by the magnificent parks and gardens that they designed with almost godlike power and foresight, thinking nothing of making lakes and shifting hills and planting woodlands to enable future generations to appreciate the sublime beauty of wild nature transformed by man. There have been Capability Brown, Sagacity Smith, Intuition Devere Slade Gore. In Ankh-Morpork, there was bloody stupid Johnson.
Bloody stupid, it might look a bit messy now, but just you come back in 500 years' time, Johnson. Bloody stupid, look, the plans were the right way round when I drew them, Johnson. Bloody stupid Johnson, who had 2,000 tonnes of earth built into an artificial hillock in front of Quirm Manor, because it'd drive me mad to have to look at a bunch of trees and mountains all day long. How about you? The Ankh-Morpork Palace grounds were considered the high spot, if such it could be called, of his career. For example, they contained the ornamental trout lake, 150 yards long, and because of one of those trifling errors of notation that was such a distinctive feature of Bloody Stupid's designs, one inch wide. It was the home of one trout, which was quite comfortable provided it didn't try to turn around, and had featured an ornate fountain, which when first switched on did nothing but groan ominously for five minutes and then fire a small stone cherub a thousand feet into the air. It contained the ho-ho, which was like a ha-ha, only deeper. A ha-ha is a concealed ditch and wall designed to allow landowners to look out across rolling vistas without getting cattle and inconvenient poor people wandering across the lawns. Under Bloody Stupid's errant pencil, it was dug fifty feet deep and had claimed three gardeners already. The maze was so small that people got lost looking for it. But the patrician rather liked the gardens, in a quiet kind of way. He had certain views about the mentality of most of mankind, and the gardens made him feel fully justified. Piles of paper were stacked on the lawn around the chair. Clerks renewed them or took them away periodically. There were different clerks. All sorts and types of information flowed into the palace, but there was only one place where it all came together, very much like strands of gossamer coming together in the centre of a web. A great many rulers, good and bad, and quite often dead, know what happened. A rare few actually manage, by dint of much effort, to know what's happening. Lord Vetinari considered both types to lack ambition. Yes, Dr. Cruces, he said, without looking up. How the hell does he do it? Cruces wondered. I know I didn't make any noise. Ah, Havelock, he began. You have something to tell me, Doctor? It's been mislaid. Yes, and no doubt you are anxiously seeking it. Very well. Good day. The patrician hadn't moved his head the whole time. He hadn't even bothered to ask what it was. He bloody well knows, thought Cruces. How is it you can never tell him anything he doesn't know? Lord Vetinari put down a piece of paper on one of the piles and picked up another. You are still here, Dr. Cruces? I can assure you, my lord, that... I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can. There is one question that intrigues me, however, my lord. Why was it in your guildhouse to be stolen? I had been given to understand it had been destroyed. I'm quite sure I gave orders. This was the question the assassin had been hoping would not be asked, but the patrician was good at that game. Um, we, uh, that is, my predecessor, thought it should serve as a warning and an example. The patrician looked up and smiled brightly. Capital, he said. I have always had a great belief in the effectiveness of examples. So I'm sure you'll be able to sort this out with minimum inconvenience all round. Certainly, my lord, said the assassin glumly, but... Noon began.
Noon in Ankh-Morpork took some time since twelve o'clock was established by consensus. Generally, the first bell to start was that one in the Teachers' Guild in response to the universal prayers of its members. Then the water clock on the Temple of Small Gods would trigger the big bronze gong. The black bell in the Temple of Fate struck once, unexpectedly, but by then the silver pedal-driven carillon in the Fools' Guild would be tinkling, the gongs, bells and chimes of all the guilds and temples would be in full swing, and it was impossible to tell them apart except for the tongueless and magical octiron bell of old Tom in the unseen university clock tower, whose twelve measured silences temporarily overruled the din. And finally, several strokes behind all the others, was the bell of the Assassin's Guild, which was always last. Beside the patrician, the ornamental sundial chimed twice and fell over. "'You were saying?' said the patrician mildly. "'Captain Vimes,' said Dr. Cruces. He's taking an interest. Dear me, but it is his job. Really, uh, I must demand that you call him off. The words echoed around the garden. Several pigeons flew away. Demand, said the patrician sweetly. Dr. Cruces backed and filled desperately. "'He is a servant, after all,' he said. "'I see no reason why he should be allowed to involve himself in affairs that don't concern him.' "'I rather believe he thinks he's a servant of the law,' said the patrician. "'He's a jack-in-office and an insolent upstart.' "'Dear me, I did not appreciate your strength of feeling. "'But since you demand it, I will bring him to heel without delay.' "'Thank you.' Don't mention it. Do not let me keep you. Dr. Cruces wandered off in the direction of the patrician's idle gesture. Lord Vetinari bent over his paperwork again and did not even look up when there was a distant muffled cry. Instead, he reached down and rang a small silver bell. A clerk hurried up. Go and fetch the ladder, will you, Drumnot? he said. Dr. Cruces seems to have fallen into the ho-ho. The back door to the dwarf Bjorn Hammerhock's workshop lifted off the latch and creaked open. He went to see if there was anyone there and shivered. He shut the door. "'Bit of a chilly breeze,' he said to the room's other occupant. "'Still we could do with it.' The ceiling of the workshop was only about five feet above the floor. That was more than tall enough for a dwarf. "Ow," oh, said a voice that no one heard. Hammerhock looked at the thing clamped in the vice and picked up a screwdriver. Ow! Amazing, he said. I think that moving this tube down the barrel forces the uh, six chambers to slide along, presenting a new one to the uh, firing hole. That seems clear enough. The triggering mechanism is really just a tinderbox device. The spring here has rusted through. I can easily replace that, you know he said, looking up. This is a very interesting device, with the chemicals and the tubes and all. Such a simple idea. Is it a clown thing, some kind of automatic slapstick? He sorted through a bin of metal offcuts to find a piece of steel, and then selected a file. I'd like to make a few sketches afterwards, he said. About thirty seconds later, there was a pop and a cloud of smoke. Bjorn Hammerhock picked himself up, shaking his head. That was lucky, he said. Could have been a nasty accident there. He tried to fan some of the smoke away, and then reached for the file again. His hand went through it. Ahem, 
Bjorn tried again. The file was as insubstantial as the smoke. What? Ahem! The owner of the strange device was staring in horror at something on the floor. Bjorn followed his gaze. Oh, he said. Realization, which had been hovering on the edge of Bjorn's consciousness, finally dawned. That was the thing about death. When it happened to you, you were among the first to know. His visitor grabbed the device from the bench and rammed it into a cloth bag. Then he looked around wildly, picked up the corpse of Mr. Hammerhock, and dragged it through the door towards the river. There was a distant splash, or as close to a splash as he could get from the ark. Oh dear, said Bjorn, and I can't swim either. That will not, of course, be a problem, said Death. Bjorn looked at him. You're a lot shorter than I thought you'd be, he said. This is because I'm kneeling down, Mr. Hammerhock. That damn thing killed me. Yes, that's the first time anything like that has ever happened to me. To anyone, but not, I suspect, the last time. Death stood up. There was a clicking of knee joints. He no longer cracked his skull on the ceiling. There wasn't a ceiling any more. The room had gently faded away. There were such things as dwarf gods. Dwarfs were not a naturally religious species, but in a world where pit props could crack without warning and pockets of fire damp could suddenly explode, they'd seen the need for gods as the sort of supernatural equivalent of a hard hat. Besides, when you hit your thumb with an eight-pound hammer, it's nice to be able to blaspheme. It takes a very special and strong-minded kind of atheist to jump up and down with their hand clasped under their other armpit and shout, Oh, random fluctuations in the space-time continuum! or arg, primitive and outmoded concept on a crutch. Bjorn didn't waste time asking questions. A lot of things become a shade urgent when you're dead. I believe in reincarnation, he said. I know. I tried to live a good life. Does that help? That is not up to me, Death coughed. Of course. Since you believe in reincarnation, you'll be Bjorn again. He waited. Yes, that's right, said Bjorn. Dwarfs are known for their sense of humour, in a way. People point them out and say, those little devils haven't got a sense of humour. Um, was there anything amusing in the statement I just made? Um, no, no, I don't think so. It was a pun, or play on words. Bjorn, again. Yes. Did you notice it? I can't say I did. Oh. Sorry. I've been told I should try to make the occasion a little more enjoyable. Bjorn, again. Yes. I'll think about it. Thank you. Right, said Sergeant Colon. This man is your truncheon, also nomenclature your nightstick or baton of office. He paused while he tried to remember his army days and brightened up. And you will look after it, he shouted. You will eat with it. You will sleep with it. You... Excuse me. Who said that? Down here. It's me, Lance Constable Cuddy. Yes, Pilgrim. How do we eat with it, Sergeant? 
Sergeant Colon's wound-up machismo wound down. He was suspicious of Lance Constable Cuddy. He strongly suspected Lance Constable Cuddy was a troublemaker. What? Well, do we use it as a knife or a fork or cut in half for chopsticks or what? What are you talking about? Excuse me, Sergeant. What is it, Lance Constable Angua? How exactly do we sleep with it, sir? Well, I... I meant... Corporal Knob, stop that sniggering right now. Colon adjusted his breastplate and decided to strike out in a new direction. Now, what we have here is a puppet, momet or hephagy, indicating a vaguely humanoid shape made of leather and stuffed with straw, mounted on a stake. Called by that nickname of Hartha, weapons training for the Hughes Hoff. Forward, Lance Constable Angua. Tell me, Lance Constable, do you think you could kill a man? How long will I have? There was a pause while they picked up Corporal Nobbs and patted him on the back until he settled down. Very well, said Sergeant Colon. What you must do now is take your truncheon like so, and on the command of one, proceed smartly to Harther, and on the command of two, tap him smartly upon the bunce. Her one, her two. The truncheon bounced off Arthur's helmet. Very good, only one thing wrong. Anyone tell me what it was? They shook their heads. From behind, said Sergeant Colon. You hit him from behind. No sense in risking trouble, is there? Now, you have a go, Lance Constable Cuddy. But Sarge, do it. They watched. Perhaps we could fetch him a chair, said Angua, after an embarrassing fifteen seconds. Detritus sniggered. Him too little to be a guard, he said. Lance Constable Cuddy stopped jumping up and down. Sorry, Sergeant, he said. This isn't how dwarves do it, see? It's how guards do it, said Sergeant Colon. All right, Lance Constable Detritus, don't salute. You give it a try. Detritus held the truncheon between what must technically be called thumb and forefinger and smashed it over Arthur's helmet. He stared reflectively at the truncheon's stump. Then he bunched up his, for want of a better word, fist, and hammered Arthur over what was briefly its head until the stake was driven three feet into the ground. "'Now the dwarf can have a go,' he said. There was another embarrassed five seconds. Sergeant Colon cleared his throat. <clears throat> "'Well, yes, I think we can consider him thoroughly apprehended,' he said. Make a note, Corporal Nobs, Lance Constable Detritus don't salute. Deducted one dollar for loss of truncheon, and you're supposed to be able to ask him questions afterwards. He looked at the remains of Arthur. I think around about now is a good time to demonstrate the fine points of harchery, he said. End of CD 2